It began yesterday, mid-afternoon. We were having a party at my house for my daughter's birthday. We were unwrapping presents and watching her play with some new toys from friends. What were you doing yesterday afternoon? Out of the East, a song of praise began in the South Pacific. The island nation of Anawatu and tribal villages began lifting up the name of Jesus. And the song moved westward as we had dinner to the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand. God being praised in Malay, Vietnamese. A song of praise as the sun that God made shone on each new region. The sun God had given was being lifted up. Some were here last night. We gathered together and sang praises in this building. The song kept coming westward. Across China, across India, the Middle East, God being praised in Mandarin and Farsi and Hindi. As we slept, the song continued moving westward across mud huts of Africa in Swahili, Kisakuma, Yalunka, and cathedrals in Europe in French, Italian, German. And today we pick up the song. And we continue the song in English, in Spanish, in Portuguese. A song bigger than us, a worldwide song of praise that began and continues throughout the day. Perhaps they're singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Be glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, Power and strength be to our God forever. These words from Revelation, we think often as the nations, those that will be reached, we think of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and they will be there. And we read this text as a missional text, which it is, but often we don't see ourselves in this text, for we are there too. We are part of the great crowd gathered, part of those people who, at the end of time, will be gathered around the throne, doing what we have done so beautifully today, without ceasing, without voices getting tired, without wanting a break, without needing water, without wanting to stop. The song will continue, and we have a part, we have a voice, for we are among the redeemed, among the elect, among the saved. The world is changing rapidly. Um, The face of missions is not what it once was. Technology expands, information increases, the growth of of technology is, is, is rapid. But the gospel continues as this constant thread, unchanging truth that must be sent forth and called to go. God opens a door to serve deaf children in Kenya. And we go. God shows us needy communities in Honduras. And we go. God shows us teens with special needs in a camp in hill country of our own state. And we go. Many of you here have gone. Many of you have stories and photos and things that have changed you indelibly forever. And many, we hope, will go again. And repeat this experience and invite others and recruit others to come with you to share what you've experienced in these places. 
Some of you will go for the first time, we hope, in the coming year. You're praying, you're considering, you're thinking about that trip that God's been stirring within you, and we hope that you will say, yes, here I am, I will go, send me. The work we're doing overseas is vital and must continue, expand, and grow. But some of you don't want to go. You don't like travel. You don't want to raise funds. You're not sure about the food over there. That's okay. You can pray. You can give. You can bless others. But the good news is you're not off the hook. Because missions is changing. And mission trips no longer require a passport or immunizations or legal documents. And missionaries aren't just the people we send over there. The ends of the earth aren't as far away as they once were. The nations continually come to us. The nations are on the move, and they are arriving, and they are coming, and they are being received and welcomed by us. The world has come. How will we respond? Well, come with me to a time when Jesus, Luke tells us, had set his face toward Jerusalem. He knows where the story's going. He's done his ministry in Galilee, preaching, teaching, healing. And now he sets his face toward the city where he knows he will die. And one day he's en route to Jerusalem. And a young man, we're told, who is a teacher of the law, has a question for Jesus. Now you know this story, but please act like you don't. Try to hear this again for the first time. This man says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Fair question. Jesus gives a question as his answer. How do you read the law? What is written there? Well, the man knows his stuff. He says, well, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Go and do likewise. Sounds like it's done. That would be a great ending to the story. Seems like there's closure, a question, a question, an answer. The answer was right. Go and do likewise. Bless you, my child. I'm going on to the next place. And the story could have ended there, and perhaps should have ended there. But the, the text tells us the man wanting to prove himself asked another question to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? This question seems innocent. If a child asks it to a parent, it might have a different connotation. Yet in this text, from this person, in this moment, there are clues, there are signs that show this is not an innocent question. I think this man might be saying, in asking, who is my neighbor, Jesus? He might be asking, who do I not have to love? Where can I draw the lines? Where is the boundary? Who can I exclude from this love? And Jesus knows the man's spirit and tells perhaps the most radical of all his parables. One after which he did not get, great job, thanks for speaking, thanks for sharing. One after which he got threats and plans that would end his life. He told this story, he said, a man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem. Perhaps he'd been to the temple worshiping, going back to his home. 
And he was waylaid by robbers, beaten, bloodied, taken everything but maybe his tunic, undergarment, and left for dead in a ditch beside the road, bleeding, open wounds. The man's thinking, hmm, I asked about my neighbor, where is this going? Well, a priest comes by, likely having served his time at the temple, leading people in worship, offering sacrifices. He walks by, he sees the man, the text says, cross to the other side of the road and continued on his way. The crowd's probably getting a little quiet at this point. Those hearing this story are very engaged. Next, a Levite comes down the road. The text says he sees the man, passes by on his way. Now, I can't imagine at this moment what people are thinking and expecting. They might think, did, was God going to send angels to redeem this man and rescue him? Was God going to do some miracle to, to bring this man to, to health and restoration? I'm just guessing, but go with me on this. This is my opinion. I think what they expected to hear next was the everyday Jew comes by. The farmer, the carpenter, the merchant. And he comes down and kneels beside the man and rescues him from his plight. People like them. They would be the heroes, the everyday Jewish Israelite. That might be what they expected, but it's not what they got. For the text says, Jesus said, a Samaritan came down the road. I can almost hear the gasps and the audible reaction to that word, Samaritan. We can't fully grasp the racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were people that were descended from the Jews when they moved into the Promised Land that intermarried the people of Samaria, which was against the covenant, against the oath. They were oath breakers. They were unfaithful to God's covenant. And they settled and married among the people who were not Jews. And their skin was a few shades darker. Their accent a few degrees thicker. And so you couldn't hide being a Samaritan. It was obvious to people that you were not pure, that you were somehow tainted. You weren't truly of the people of God. One rabbi, in expressing his disdain, said, He who eats the bread of Samaritans eats the flesh of swine, which for a Jew is reprehensible. Samaritans were a hated people a people looked down upon, a people despised. Even in the previous chapter of Luke, there was a village of Samaritans, and Jesus sent his disciples ahead, and the Samaritans would not receive him. Jesus was rejected by them in chapter 9 of Luke. And yet, in this story, Jesus makes one of them the hero. The one who comes and kneels down, puts the man on his own donkey, goes to the next town and says, I'll give you all my money now, and if he, if he incurs more expenses, I'll come back tomorrow and pay you whatever that costs. Please care for this man at my expense, whatever it takes. And in making the Samaritan the hero of the story, Jesus gives us many lessons to ponder. And Luke uses a special word 
found only in the Gospels and only used of God and Jesus and people who stand for them in parables like this man and the prodigal son's father. It's a word that's translated moved by compassion, deeply, deeply moved by pity, beyond just sorrow, but this, this desire and move to act. And the fact that Jesus describes a Samaritan this way would be another layer of scandal to the early Jews. So what did Jesus actually say to the lawyer? What does his answer entail? Have we missed part of this story? Dr. Amy Levine is a Jewish professor of New Testament at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. And she tells the story of a, of a doctoral student who was doing a dissertation on the Good Samaritan text. And he uh, polled several people, he was a Protestant, uh, of his congregation and other congregations to, to get their response for what is the meaning of this parable. He had some choices and some open response answers. And the things that he received were what you might expect, showing compassion to those in need, not passing by those who are hurting, um, rendering aid to those we, we encounter in this life. The things that we've heard and the things that are there and the things that are true, but may not be the whole truth. Because he asked Dr. Levine, how would first century Jews have heard this parable? And he showed her his results. And she graciously said, well, these, these are all very good and these are all true but they're nowhere close to what first century Jews would have heard in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They, they're a, a little far afield of what they would have heard. Of course, he's at that point very curious. Well, by all means, enlighten me on what they would have heard. She writes that we, we see the parable as from the perspective of the person passing by. We want to be the person that gives aid, that renders aid, that helps. We want to be the person who shows compassion. And she says they would have heard the parable from the perspective of the man in the ditch. When you are wounded and vulnerable and broken, from whom would you least want help in that moment? Who do you hate so much you would say, I would rather die in the ditch than have their help. I would rather not have your aid, you Samaritan. Please keep walking and let me die. This is the emotional ethos of this passage. Jesus says to the Jews, your neighbor might look like you'd not expect them to and might be different. And after he, he gives this, this turn of the screw, he says to go and do likewise. In saying this, he's telling the lawyer, the love you seek to show has no limits. There are no lines to draw. There is no place to exclude. There is no one from whom this love can be, should be, will be exempted. There is no boundary. There is no place where my love should not go. When you find someone in life like this man in the ditch, you do to him as he has done unto you, as a Samaritan has done unto him. And so we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think, if we look close enough, a very robust missiology of what it means to do and be good neighbors to each other. And if we look deeply enough, we see the piercing question that I will leave with you in the Lord. While you would not openly despise or disdain anyone, we have to ask ourselves, who do we secretly hate?
or at the very least distrust, or cross the street when we see them, maybe metaphorically. Who would you not want to help you when you're broken and vulnerable? Someone from that race, that part of the world, from that religion, from that political party, from that sexual orientation? Jesus says that is who you must go and serve. The call to go and do likewise still echoes throughout eternity, and the faces of our neighbors are changing. We live near one of the densest refugee pockets in America, a place called Vickery Meadows. To North Dallas, you zip by it on 75 probably all the time if you go that way. It's not a place you would go unless you know it's there. By some very nice areas of our, our city, Over 5,000 people living in five square miles, speaking over 100 languages. They're not tourists. They didn't come because they wanted to come. They came because their homeland became a place of war and famine and terror and violence and rape and torture. And they fled for their own lives, and the government has sent them here to find a new life and to have a place of peace. There are people from South Sudan in this next picture. There are eight people uh, who speak Uduk, a small language spoken in villages throughout South Sudan. They lived in a camp for two years in Ethiopia. Their their homeland was in civil war. Uh, Some of these people literally packed up and left hours before their village was attacked by the rebels. And they're fleeing with kids in tow. And I work with these these, uh, friends on a project last year. And one day at lunch, I said to one of them, Isaac, I said, Isaac, what was life like in the refugee camp? Isaac got pretty quiet. He said, it was the hardest thing I could ever imagine. I woke up every day before the sun to stand in line for three hours to get water for my family. If I didn't get there soon enough, I might not get water. You can imagine their fistfights in line, people arguing, people shouting, people milling around, people angry, upset. Conditions were harsh. Our tent leaked when it rained. Our children slept on these cardboard pallets on the floor. The ground would get muddy. Our children got dirty. And every day people died. Disease, malnutrition, we're surrounded by death all the time. And they asked us to dig the graves. So our bodies were weak and malnourished, and we go out in the desert, in the heat, and with these shovels, we dig. And we dig a hole. And because we were so weak, Isaac said, we tried to fit as many bodies as we could inside one hole. So we couldn't dig anymore. Our friends, people we knew, were cramming in these mass graves. These people now live in Dallas and work among us. They have jobs we wouldn't consider prestigious. The night shift, driving a forklift for Sears, cleaning windows for restaurant companies. Um, But these are our neighbors and some of my heroes, some of my champions of faith. My kids play with their kids and I see the laughter and smiles and think the ends of the earth aren't as far as they once were. This picture, uh, one picture back is a group of people from Burma. They speak a language called Zotung Chin. This is an apartment up in Vickery Meadows. And they're working with a co-worker and me to record the New Testament in their language for the first time ever. 
And many people back in their home country are not literate, and so they are able to hear God's word. This is work I'm blessed to do, beautiful work to be involved in. The next picture is a man who I will call Abdullah. He's holding a certificate. He finished this English class. He's very proud. Um, He's a Muslim man from Southeast Asia. And he's changed my paradigm. He came here because he's being persecuted by the local Hindu population in his country. And he's not a believer. But we we were able to get an audio file of the book of Jonah in this man's language. He'd never heard it. He knew about Jonah. Jonah's actually mentioned in the Quran, if you didn't know that. And he said, oh, oh, I know about Jonah. Yeah, I've heard about Jonah. And we played this story for him. I'm thinking, you know, this isn't like the Gospels or really a home run text. This is Jonah, which is good, but, you know, it's all we have in this language. So we'll just, we'll just play this for this man. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm willing to be surprised here, right? After the first chapter, uh, I noticed that he is getting emotional hearing this text. We pause it. We talk about his questions. He had some uh, things to ask about Jonah, and he was moved to tears in chapter one. I'm thinking, wow, go Jonah, you know, right? <laughs> you know, okay, uh, I repent, Lord. Your word is powerful and everywhere. Um, and then we, we listen to the prayer from the belly of the fish in chapter two. And again, the tears come. And I'm just, I'm so humbled by this. And we finished that chapter, and we listened again, and he, he was moved to tears a third time, hearing Jonah in his language. And I think, how great is our God? How amazing, this man, this Muslim man, who's a peaceful, loving man, three sweet, adorable boys. We think of his religion, unfortunately, inaccurately, as, as the subject of persecution, those doing persecution. In this case, he was the object of persecution, and he came here to find a new home for his family, and he has. So these are our neighbors. Whatever we might think about them, whatever the news might tell us about their homelands, these are our neighbors, people to whom we can and should go and do likewise. A few chapters after this text in Luke, is my favorite chapter in all the Bible, Luke 15, my canon within the canon, where a shepherd leaves the 99, searching through the night to find the one, where a widow sweeps her floor meticulously, trying to find that lone single coin, where a father stands on his porch awaiting the return of the son, Back to his heart. Will we join the story? The shepherd is still seeking. The widow is still sweeping. And the father is on the porch. And he is still waiting. Will we be part of the narrative? Will we join the story? Will we go?